Hey everybody, Magnus here. Just to be clear, what I'm about to say is based on the leaked version of the Batman v Superman trailer that at the time that I record this basically leaked today. So this is not the official release that I'm responding to, this is actually the, the leaked version. So... I'm not really sure what exactly my problem was, but basically, I guess what I had, what I had assumed is that because of the fact that we were now pretty well beyond the release of Man of Steel, that a lot of the hysteria and whatnot about it had pretty much gone away. That, you know, that section of the fan base, love them or hate them, they basically maybe they felt like they'd made their point, and so they moved on. And that is not exactly what ha what, uh, what's happened here. I mean, fucking shit. If, if any of you Man of Steel fans were hoping that things might get better with the advent of Batman v Superman, you're in for some bitter disappointment. The regressive, whiny, self-absorbed man-children who made the release of Man of Steel all but fucking intolerable, are already loaded for bear for Batman versus Superman. So, I guess what I'm saying is, uh, get your flak jackets ready, because Batman versus Superman's theatrical release, the way that things are shaping up right now, it looks like it's going to make the world war that was Man of Steel's release look like a pleasant, sunny vacation. You thought they bitched and complained last time? Loyal subjects, you ain't seen nothing yet. Now, I guess apart from all of that stuff, you know, as to the trailer itself, <sighs> eh. I guess my reading of it is that the world's responding to Superman's presence. Sometimes that response is positive. Sometimes it's negative, and sometimes it's really fucking weird. But they're responding to them. That's the point. Now, as to the trailer's darkness, uh, you guys do remember that Batman's in this movie too, right? Anyway, I just wanted to ask. your attention, please! This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Ah! Doom wears body to conceal his own angled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important.
Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and it's usually right about now that I say I talk about other things. Specifically, comics, movies, and TV shows. But the fact of the matter is that I probably talk more about comics than I do film or television. It's just how I roll. But... I seriously dig putting all that shit on pause to gush about Smallville. You see, Smallville is my favorite TV series ever. It's also my favorite incarnation of Superman, numero uno with a bullet. That is to say, apart from the comics anyway, it's my favorite. Now, I've noticed that saying so seems to be a pretty good way to set certain people at least off the deep end because it seems like the default expectation is that Christopher Reeve deserves the top spot on the list not even for any kind of rational justification it's just hey Chris Reeve and apparently that's all the justification that I that I should need well What I can say for sure is that it's for damn sure the only justification I ever seem to get. Now, as much as I love Chris Reeve as Superman, he doesn't get the top spot on my list. But anyway, that's that's, that stuff. When I first started this podcast, what I used to do is set aside every eighth episode to talk Star Wars. But that kind of wore out its welcome after a while. I mean, in the bigger scheme of things... I guess I didn't have as much to say about Star Wars as I thought. But another problem is that setting aside a designated Star Wars episode felt a little too similar to Star Wars Monthly Monday from Two True Freaks. Now I can I can say hand on heart when I first established the format of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, that wasn't something that I gave a whole lot of thought to. I just created a format that seemed cool to me. And I didn't really think too much beyond that single point. But it started to become a consideration once I'd gotten a little bit more experience as a podcaster and it became full-blown fucking panic when I moved everything over to the Two True Freaks uh, podcast network over from Libsyn, which I did years ago. But anyway, in fact... I'd go so far as to say that moving over to the Two True Freaks podcast network pretty much was the death knell for my Star Wars shows, at least as a a sort of fixed uh, part of my format. I mean, look, in a perfect world, I'd like to avoid pissing off my hosts. They're the ones doing me the favor by permitting me access to their podcast network, after all. And I guess... Beyond that, I'd really like to avoid the appearance of ripping off someone else's ideas because I can't come up with my own. All this to say that I abolished my Star Wars weekend episodes. It was just the decision that I made. Now, I'm not saying I won't talk about Star Wars again in some future show. As a matter of fact, if I were a betting man, I'd say I probably will. All I'm saying is I won't discuss Star Wars as part of my format as as a dedicated part of my format like I used to. That's all I'm saying. So, whatever. Anyway, something had to take Star Wars place though, right? Now, now's a good time to mention that I got a fair amount of 
attention, maybe, is the best way to put it for this podcast. Um, Starting with my very first episode, because I defended Smallville from what I thought were a lot of unfair, unwarranted, and really kind of baseless attacks that it had suffered over the years. The thinking went that maybe I should revisit that idea by doing shows where I analyze Smallville. Not just defend it, you understand, but take an active hand by bringing up all of Smallville's virtues and strong points. Basically, all the shit that I love about the show. And also, analyze that some bitch. You know, why do all the characters do those crazy things they do? For that matter, just how well does Smallville tell the story of some mixed-up farm kid becoming Superman? Stuff like that. See... Nobody should ever argue that Smallville is note-for-note perfect. That just wouldn't be true. Smallville has its fair share of problems and flaws. Anybody who says otherwise, they just don't know what they're talking about. It's really no more complicated than that. On the other hand, though, it's better than people say. And it just doesn't deserve the bad rap it's gotten over the years. I mean, honestly, it pains me that some folks either can't or won't acknowledge all the things Smallville did amazingly well. And from where I sit, the good far outweighs the bad. And let me add here that, look, it's one thing to decide that, you know what, Smallville just isn't your thing. And if that's how you feel, I say, go in peace. But it's a completely other thing to say it somehow dishonors what Superman's all about, or some such grandiose bullshit. Look, Smallville makes no effort to fit in with the tone or the continuity of the Reeve movies. That much is definitely true. So, if your love of Superman is kind of predicated on Christopher Reeve and goings-on with those films, and you just can't accept anything else, again, go in peace. But... If you just never saw what was so good about Smallville, or maybe you just dismissed it too quickly, these retrospective episodes of mine may help you change your mind. That's the idea, anyway. Now, originally I considered doing commentaries for each episode of the show, but what I eventually realized is that that worked out to in excess of 200-some-odd shows, which means 200-some-odd commentaries. Even I couldn't hope to manage that. Besides, my bet is I'd go nuts, gouge my eyes out with a fork, jump out a window, probably shave my head and then join a religious cult, if I had to record a commentary for every single fucking episode from the dreaded season four. Because the dreaded season four sucks. Fuck you, dreaded season four. Fuck you. Anyway, These little retrospective episodes that I go through are a great way to talk about a couple of Smallville episodes at a time as I work my way through the entire series. There's more than enough bullshit here to last for years' worth of eighth episodes considering how I've structured this podcast format. In other words, this approach seemed like a pretty good compromise. Also, the idea in all this is to be kind of holistic by tying relevant subplots and other continuity points in later seasons back to what's come before as I go through all this shit. The reason for that is because 
Smallville's continuity is incredibly fucking underrated. And so if you ask me, it's just about time that somebody gave Smallville its due for having good continuity. Anyway, to get down to it, though, last time I finished my remarks after recapping Smallville Season 2, Episode 17, Rosetta. And that can mean only one thing. It's time for a break. So I'll be right back to resume the discussion about Season 2, Episode number 18, Visitor. Sure is great to be back to from crisis to crisis after all this time. It's been a busy year for both of us. For very different reasons. But now we're ready to cover the post-death and return Superman stories. Yeah, and we're about to start the books that came out in 1994, which means that we have so much to look forward to, like Bizarro's World. The Battle for and Fall of Metropolis. Superman Doomsday, Hunter, Prey. Worlds Collide. Well, you're looking forward to that one. Oh, bite me. Zero hour. Zero month. And right there at the end, we have Dead Again. And don't forget, the Elseworlds annuals as well. Well, most of them anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. some of those really did suck, don't they? But From Crisis to Crisis is back. New episodes will drop on Thursday, just like before. You can find the show at the Superman homepage, www.supermanhomepage.com, as well as at the Superman Podcast Network, which is at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we also have a Facebook page that you can like by going to www.facebook.com slash from crisis to crisis a superman podcast.com. Is it dot com on there? No. No, no, it's not. No, no dot com. Forget that. <laughs> so from crisis to crisis is back, folks, and better than ever. Well, I'm better than ever. You need some work. No, shut up. No, you 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 shut up. From crisis to crisis, a Superman podcast covering the post-crisis adventures of Superman, one half month at a time, every Thursday at www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailitude.com I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice, blind justice, a guardian devil. (coughs) No, 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 that's not actually true. I'm not Daredevil, blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster, but you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's it's my Daredevil, you get it, you get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare? 
this is Erica Durant. You're listening to Magnus talk about Smallville. Okay, I'm back now talking about Smallville Season 2, beginning with episode number 18, Visitor. (sighs) Let's be honest. This isn't Smallville's strongest episode, but at the same time, there's some incredibly good stuff going on here. But first, the not-so-good. Some weird kid named Cyrus thinks he's an alien. Turns out not to be true, though. It's a little believable to some people, though, because he appears to start a fire with his eyes. Now, it's later revealed that he rigged that up himself. It was just a trick using magnesium and a remote control. It's just a trick. That requires us to believe that he knew he'd get pushed around in class during that period, and that he knew he'd end up standing exactly where he did, so that he could create the illusion that he caused the fire using heat vision. And that's a hell of a leap in logic. But apart from that, this episode's fairly well loaded with character. Everybody has an opinion about Cyrus and his claims to be an alien. It's interesting to consider everybody's point of view. Pete's skeptical about it. And I can't help but wonder if it's partially territoriality on Pete's part. He knows Clark's secret, and he sees that there's really not much glamour to being or knowing an alien, and on some level, maybe Pete just doesn't want to give up his position as the local alien's confidant. Lex is scornful of the idea. To him, the simplest and most obvious explanation is mental illness. And as it happens, Lex happens to be closer to the truth than anybody, at least to start with. And in fact, this actually sort of ties in with a a character trait that Lex tends to have. I've said before that Lex tends to be slightly more cynical, or skeptical, I should say, slightly more skeptical about things than Lionel Luther is. He's slightly more empirical. To Lex, the simplest explanation is, without a doubt, the most likely one. And most likely, Cyrus is not, in fact, truly an alien from some other planet. He's some confused, mentally disturbed young man. Nothing more to it than that. Chloe has plenty of doubt that Cyrus is from another planet, but at the same time, she thinks it'd be really cool if he was, and she makes no bones about how she'd embrace an alien if she ever met one. As for Lana the bigot, she freely admits it'd freak her the hell out to meet an alien. So, Chloe and Lana's reactions to this fascinate me because obviously the showrunners came up with it, but at the same time, they apparently didn't see how Chloe and Lana's views on aliens would prejudice the viewers. Chloe thinks it'd be cool to meet an alien, while Lana admits that she'd be freaked out by the experience. But through it all, we're supposed to root for Lana to be with Clark rather than rather than Chloe. It just doesn't work. Now, to be fair, everybody's reaction is completely theoretical. Cyrus ends up not being an alien, so it happens that Lex, Lana, and Chloe 
don't even realize that they're friends with an alien. You don't think he's really an alien, do you? No. But wouldn't it be awesome if he was, though? Yeah, it'd be the story of the century, wouldn't it? This isn't about Pulitzers, Clark. I mean, can you imagine being from another planet? The experiences you could share? It wouldn't freak you out. Ah, compared to most people, I think aliens would be a step up. Actually, he thinks he's an alien. So that proves he isn't. Come on, Clark, if you were really an alien, would you go around telling people about it? Probably not. Lana, what if Cyrus really could have proven he was an alien? What do you mean? I mean, how would you feel about him if he actually was from another planet? Well, um... I guess I'd try and keep an open mind. You'd never feel completely comfortable with him, would you? I have to admit, I'd be a little freaked out. Does that make me a bad person? No, just honest. Other stuff. Martha meets with Helen and the subject of her miraculous recovery back in fever along with Clark's odd blood sample, both come up as topics of conversation. This is the first time Helen's been played ambiguously. Now, there's a sense in which she might be asking all these questions out of concern for Martha and the baby's well-being. But watch her face and her eyes during the scene. She looks kinda sorta completely fucking insane for just a second. For just a second. And for just a second, you have to wonder that there's maybe another agenda going on there. Now, I look, I will be the first to admit, blink and you miss it, but it's in there. Martha, if you really want me to help, you've got to be completely honest with me. For your safety and the babies. This is an interesting episode in the sense that Helen starts getting a decent idea of what, of what being with Lex Luthor is going to be like. The Metropolis Inquisitor publishes a slam piece about her. Lex's attitude is that this is how life's going to be, and there's really not much that anybody can do about it. But it's obviously going to take some getting used to for Helen. Something else she's going to have to adjust to is Lex's Hall of Miracles, by which I mean... The room dedicated to the car crash on the bridge from the pilot episode and also other fucked up things from Smallville. He's got the wrecked Porsche, a computer-generated diagram of the bridge crash, a parasite from Rush, Clark's, fa uh, Clark's family tree from Rosetta, diagrams of the Kryptonian key, and other shit related to the Kent family. Now understand, this room is Lex's private sanctum. Bringing Helen in there is basically letting her see some of his most private and intimate thoughts. Or obsessions. And this is where it comes full circle to Helen's scenes with Martha. I mean, sure, Helen says that she should be bound by patient confidentiality. And she's right. But what's to say that she won't spill the beans about Martha's miraculous healing? or Clark's strange blood. Now, we know from later episodes that she never said a word about it. 
And honestly, that's not much of a spoiler, but we don't know and can't know that she never would have said anything. Maybe a year or two down the line, is it possible that Helen might mention something to Lex about what she knew? No one can say for sure. Apart from that stuff, one of Visitor's subplots is that Cyrus is being harassed and bullied by a few other students in the school. Now, Clark regularly intervenes and protects Cyrus, and to my knowledge, this is the only time I can remember seeing something like this, but honestly, I wish we could have seen more of it. I like the idea of Clark rescuing people from bullies. It just, it feels authentic to me. This is the kind of thing that Clark would have no hesitation about doing. And let's face it, of everybody at Smallville High School, Clark has absolutely nothing to fear from those losers. Something else? Cyrus claims to be an alien. And Clark's at least willing to consider that possibility. And remembering that Clark's world got rocked big time back in Rosetta, it's pretty easy to see why. Clark was the only one who was willing to believe in Cyrus. Now, true, his faith ended up being unjustified. There's no doubting that, but he still believed in Cyrus for a while. And I I guess I maybe should have mentioned that sooner, but fuck it, I've got ADD. Oh, one other thing. Clark Kent. Cyrus Krupp. Both have CK as their initials. Just something to think about. Episode 19, Precipice. The back of the trading card summary here goes that Clark beats the absolute fuck out of some college kids because they slapped Lana around. One of them ends up filing assault charges against Clark. Meanwhile, Helen's being stalked by a dude called Paul, an ex-boyfriend of hers. He fakes an attack on himself and then files assault charges against Lex for it. Clark beats the shit out of the college kids, and Lex goes looking for Paul later. Both of them aren't completely in the right. In Lex's case, the police needed to handle it. It's simple as that. Yeah, Lex wanted a piece of Paul for hurting Helen. And dude, totally understandable. But it's a police issue. Period. There's a time and a place to take action in, self de- in a self-defense type of situation. But that isn't what was happening with Lex and Helen. As for Clark... Once again, he's facing his own fallibility. He reacted in anger. For the first time, and this is, you got to triple underline this part. For the first time, he lashes out against regular humans. Did they deserve the ass kicking he gave them? Dude, no question about it. But here's the thing. Clark has power. It's on him to be responsible about it. He can't react emotionally to things. If he was going to beat up the college kids, the time to do it was when they were pushing Lana around. Even so, all Clark really did in the eyes of the law was smack around some kids who, let's face it, probably needed to get smacked around. What Lana says isn't hearsay. Hearsay, by definition, can't be offered by the victim in a case like this. And considering that Lana was their victim and Clark was an eyewitness, I believe the law would look the other way on this. Keep in mind, though, people, I live in a red state with a ridiculously fucking low threshold for self-defense. But whatever. That stuff isn't the point of this episode. What Clark has to learn is that 
there's a time and a place to beat the piss out of someone. And there's a time and a place to keep his emotions in check. He chose the wrong time to beat the hell out of people. This moment makes Clark think about the message from the ship. It's a message from my biological father. I'm sure I'm reading it wrong. Why? What does it say? On this third planet from this star, soul, you be God among men. They are a flawed race, rule them with strength, my son. That is where your greatness lies. I think I was sent here to conquer. For the first time, Clark's seeing things from a somewhat authoritarian point of view. On a moral level, he did what needed to be done. Nobody really got hurt over it, but hopefully the frat boys learned their lesson. That should have been enough. But it isn't. Instead, they filed assault charges against the Kents. It doesn't matter what is or isn't right anymore. What matters is what can be proven in court. Maybe this is where it all starts. Remember what it said in the spaceship? Their flawed race rule them with strength. Up to now, Clark's usually played by the rules. He's maybe poked a toe out of line, but when all's said and done, the ends always justified the means. Clark has to understand that he can impose order upon this flawed race. And considering the injustice that he's facing, there's, there's got to be some kind of temptation to do that. Ultimately, he obviously decides not to do it, though. But when Clark says this could be where all that starts, I think he could be as much fantasizing as anything. Maybe this is where it all starts. Remember what it said in the spaceship? Their flawed race ruled them with strength. This episode marks the beginning for a few things. This is the first time we see some Lana Fu. And God help us, there will be plenty more of that in future episodes. But it's also the first time that we meet Sheriff Adams, the chick who replaced Ethan as Sheriff in Smallville. She's a ball buster, and she's not going to let the Kents get by with the same kind of bullshit that, that uh, Ethan always did. Your former sheriff? He may look way the other way on these matters, but I'm here to tell you, those good old boy days are over. Of course, she says that to to Bo Jonathan Duke Kent. Oh yeah, and Lex proposes to Helen in this episode. Forgot to mention that. Witness episode number twenty. Clark sees some kryptonite-powered thugs rob a Luthercorp truck. When he tries to intervene, they beat the shit out of him and drive off. Clark has to catch up with them later and settle their hash without any pesky witnesses or sheriffs around to screw up his action. Here's what I think. I guess Zachary Ty Bryan didn't take kindly to Clark beating up on his little brother, so he came to Smallville looking to get even. Payback isn't a bitch. It's a virgin. Because bitches are easy. Still, good continuity going on here. Clark learned a little something-something from Precipice. Namely, don't beat the shit out of people if they don't pose immediate danger. And definitely don't do it if there's any chance his name can be attached to it. I mean, who needs more static from Sheriff Adams, right? It's a, 
it's a good reminder that this episode doesn't take place in a vacuum. This definitely happens in the shadow of the events of Precipice. Another kind of neat thing, though, is that Jonathan and Martha are starting to respect uh, Clark's role as an anonymous hero. In Insurgents, Clark, uh, Jonathan makes a point of saying he's not going to try stopping Clark from rescuing Martha during that hostage situation in Luther Court Plaza. But that's not exactly a ringing, a ringing endorsement of Clark's actions. Jonathan takes a different approach here. The saying goes, lead, follow, or get out of the way. Well, Jonathan decides to get the hell out of Dodge until Clark sorts this mess out. The only thing he tells Clark is to give himself a fighting chance. Don't just come out guns blazing. Whatever Clark has to do, he should do it with a plan. Now, in general, this episode is good for what it teaches Clark. He needs to think things out, he has to create, and then use a tactical advantage when he deals with meteor freaks. And he has to be able to escape detection. Clark's been lucky up to this episode in that he's mostly fought mutants who really aren't all that close to his power level. He's had some close calls, but by and large, most of the supervillains that he's faced off with weren't a real match for him. But Eric Marsh and his crypto-steroid buddies are. They can hang with Clark thanks to the fact that their strength is based on kryptonite. If Clark wants to win, he has to fight smarter, not harder. There are a lot of issues in play here. Most of Clark's activities in Smallville as a TV show are based on anonymity. But this is the first indication Clark may have ever had that there are circumstances where he's going to have to confront supervillains without the benefit of staying anonymous, or for that matter, them dying in the act of the fight. It's not enough that Clark, that Clark stay off the sheriff's radar. His opponents can't have any way to strike back at him through his friends or his family. This is the first time Clark's ever had to face this challenge. And again, his own fallibility becomes an issue here. He's always been able to win, either through keeping a low profile or because his enemy fell on his own sword. That's not going to cut it this time. Clark needs some kind of way to fight supervillains, openly if need be. But to do so in a way that keep, uh, keeps Clark Kent's name out of police reports and off someone's list of enemies. Beyond that, though, Clark is officially a civilian. Nobody wants to drag civilians into dangerous situations. But a, su a, a superhero who uses an alias? That might be a different story. Clark's a long way from coming to the full realization of all of that, but Witness marks the first time that the lack of a secret identity has bitten Clark right in the ass. The other thing is, as I said, Jonathan pretty much gets off Clark's nuts in this episode. Now, I happen to think that if this was a first season episode, Jonathan might not have been so laissez-faire about the whole thing. He might have insisted on keeping some kind of tabs on Clark and his actions as he takes on Eric Marsh and the crypto uh, junkies. He doesn't do that this time, though. He scoops Mar Martha up, and then they head out of town until Clark gives them the all-clear. Now, you could argue that some part of that relates to wanting to protect uh, Martha and the baby. And you know what? Fuck it. You got a leg to stand on. But notice this. It was okay with Jonathan that... Clark stay behind. 
He didn't insist that Clark come with him. Jonathan trusted Clark to take care of this on his own. And that's important. Anyway, other things. Clark and Lana are getting closer to one another. And not because it even makes sense anymore, but because that's the, tra uh, the trajectory that the show has to take them in. And naturally, Chloe's pissed off about this. Again, Chekhov's gun. This is going somewhere. There's also business with Henry Small. Lana catches Mrs. Small in an affair, and Mrs. Small blames Lana for it. See, apparently all Henry can talk about is Lana. Lana this, Lana that, Lana pink, Lana princess, Lana, 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 all Lana, all the time. That's driven Mrs. Small into the arms of another man, because... Henry taking an interest in his daughter is apparently way over the line of good taste. Everybody knows that good fathers shouldn't have relationships with their daughters. That's just not done. It's tacky. Now, rather than telling Mrs. Small to, to go sit on a flagpole, Lana assumes the position of the victim. She bitches and cries and eventually tells Henry that he has to work his shit out with his wife. Until then, their father-daughter relationship pretty much has to be put on hold. It's not spoiling ahead too much to say that this is the last we see of Henry Small. Anyway, in terms of subplots that don't drive me to drink, Lex shows Lionel a copy of the Smallville High Torch with Chloe's name included. In so doing, he puts Lionel onto Chloe's work. Witness marks the beginning of Lionel and Chloe's... <sighs> See, I don't even want to call it a friendship. But their partnership? Their arrangement? Quid pro quo? Shared grudge? Call it what you want, but... It all starts here. And people, this is not small potatoes. This is going to go on to become one of the most important relationships of the entire series. This is huge. I cannot overemphasize this. Anyway, in a nod to continuity, Lex makes a, level, uh, makes a reference to uh, level three. I mention it because this is the first time in a pretty fucking long time that anybody's brought up level three. <clears throat> and what little we know about the work that was done at level three is pretty consistent with Eric Marsh stealing shipments of refined kryptonite to use as a type of steroid compound to boost his strength. But this isn't the last that we're going to hear about this. There's a reason that Lionel's been refining kryptonite. Again, Chekhov's gun. More to follow. All in all, I really can't pick on the plot mechanics or some of the character stuff in Witness. I mean, yeah, the Lana and Henry bullshit is, to me, it's a little sick, twisted, and it's kind of an omen of things to come, but... When you forget about that and just focus on literally every other aspect of Witness, you come away with a rock-solid episode with some pretty fun fight scenes. So I ask you, sir, what's not to like? You know? <sighs> anyway, I think that just about does it for this segment. Uh, we're very close to the conclusion of the second season. Things are starting to heat up, and you can bet your ass that they're going to boil over in the upcoming episodes. But all that's still to come. Be right back after these messages. 
Krom. I have never prayed to you before. I have no tongue for it. No one, not even you, will remember if we were good men or bad. Why we bought, why we sold on eBay. All that matters is that 50 cent Captain Kirk Migo action figure. That's what's important. Cheapness pleases you, Grom. So grab me one request. Grab me the fruit of suburbia's garage sales. Let me drive those dealers away from that box of records and hear the lamentations of the children as I buy their Star Wars toys for a quarter. And if you do not listen, then to hell with you! Hello, I'm Chris Honeywell, and I make my living going to garage sales and then selling the junk I find on eBay. That's right, just like those assholes on TV. You can hear a podcast all about it where I tell you about all the good junk I got, how I sold it, give you tips, gripe, bitch, and moan, and even have friends come along with me. So check it out. It's called Garage Sale Gloat, and it can only be found at 2TrueFreaks.com, which is, of course, the home of the 2 True Freaks Network. Duh. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast on iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. I'm back now, resuming my discussion of, and retrospective for, Smallville Season 2, beginning with Episode 21, Accelerate. Lana's stalked by a little girl. She thinks it's the ghost of her childhood best friend, Emily Densmore. The truth is actually simpler than that. The little girl is an age-accelerated clone of, of Emily Densmore, who's escaped her confinement and is determined to resume her friendship with Lana until she goes batshit fucking nuts and tries to kill Lana instead of befriend her. Yeah, I, I guess that's the simpler explanation. Anyway, whatever. There's some good continuity connecting uh, Accelerate to previous episodes. Chloe's uh, cold and distant with Clark after their blowout in Witness. Their conflict there didn't just get swept under the rug. It's a factor in Accelerate. They, they can barely speak to each other. Funny thing is, Emily always believed in ghosts. You know, whenever a candle flickered or a curtain rustled, she'd insist it was my mom trying to talk to me. As much as I wanted to believe her, I always knew it was make 
believe. Maybe this is her way of, of showing me that the dead really can communicate with us. Part of me wants to bash on Lana for saying that. But on the other hand, communion with departed spirits wouldn't be the weirdest thing that Lana's ever seen by this point in the show. There's got to be a rational explanation for this girl. Um, no, Clark. There doesn't. And call me crazy, but a super-powered alien has less right than anybody to insist upon logical and rational explanations. Don't get me wrong. There is a rational, scientific explanation for what Lana's seeing. But there didn't have to be one. Anyway. Deeper themes and implications. As a wedding present, Lionel effectively pays for Lex's honeymoon on a private island that he and Helen are going to have pretty much all to themselves. He even volunteers the private Luthercorp jet. When Lex challenges Lionel on this, Lionel smiles proudly and says all he wants is for Lex to be happy. And Lex seems genuinely moved by that. Understand, Lex could make his own honeymoon arrangements and buy his own plane. None of that's the issue. The issue here is that Lionel's taking an active hand in trying to contribute something to Lex's wedding, his life, and his happiness. And think about how Jitters and Insurgents both ended. In both of those episodes, Lex watched the, the Kents be reunited after a deadly hostage uh, situation. Their love and affection was pure and heartfelt. All they wanted was the best for each other and for their family unit. Lex clearly envied that. The expression Lex makes when Lionel offers all that stuff to him with no strings attached gives you the idea that he desperately wants this to be real. He hopes that he and Lionel truly can be a family. As with other things, this is not small potatoes. This is going somewhere. Now, to be fair, it's going to be a while before it gets really paid off, but man, what a payoff. Something else is that Chloe and Lana both level with Clark about the fantasy he's created out of Lana. He doesn't see her flaws. All he sees is the pretty, perfect pink princess. Chloe and Lana both try to open Clark's eyes about this and basically just say, dude, nobody's perfect. Clark refuses to see it, though. And this is the one aspect of Clark's fixation on Lana that... I gotta be honest, it kinda rings true. Clark's idealized his family. Uh, he's also idealized Jonathan and Martha's marriage. Clark is willfully living in fantasy land because that's easier than recognizing the struggle that real life can be sometimes. And it makes sense. It fits Clark's character to a T. I can criticize a lot of things about how Lana's portrayed in this series, but the way Clark views her may be factually incorrect, but it's absolutely right for who he is as a character. She's not crazy. I wasn't saying she was crazy. All I'm saying is there's a lot of things about Lana that you don't know. I mean, you don't hear her crying in her room at 3 o'clock in the morning. What you see is just a mask. Do you always believe in me? It means a lot. Lana, what is this all about? It's just that sometimes I, um, I feel like you've created this perfect picture of who I am. 
That's what I see. This might sound silly. <laughs> but I have this fear that... that one day you'll finally get a good look at me and... I'm going to disappoint you. That you'll see that, that I'm not as strong or as good as you think I am. And I'm afraid that it'll change the way you feel about me. Chloe can see Lana's faults and her shortcomings. Lana can see them for herself. It makes sense then that Clark's refusal to acknowledge that Lana's not perfect validates Lana and royally pisses Chloe off. And it fits well in that respect. Apart from the deeper themes and implications, though, there's just a really cool moment when Clark chases Emily through the graveyard. Now, in some ways, those effects haven't aged very well. There's just no denying it. On the other hand, what you have to remember is that this level of production value and visual effects was fucking cutting edge back in 2003. Emily Dinsmore is one of the few supervillains from this show up to this point who can match Clark's super speed. Somebody realized the potential there and used the cemetery chase to its full effect. On a purely technical level, the rain and water effects are absolutely seamless. If this shot was put into a show today, Aspects of it would probably look more polished in a technical sense, but the sequence itself wouldn't be much more advanced on a conceptual level. What I'm saying here is that this is first-rate stuff, and it's helped by Jodell Furland, the kid who plays Emily. And she truly is menacing and creepy, but at the same time, she's innocent and childlike in this sequence. As an actress... Overall, I think she's kind of hit and miss in this episode, but in the cemetery piece, she didn't have to speak, and that, and I don't mean this in a mean way, but that actually worked to her strengths as a child actress. She did good, she, I think she did a good job in this scene. That's what I'm saying. Related to this, this is the first time that human cloning and genetic engineering have become a plot point in this show. Now, obviously, I don't spoil ahead, but suffice it to say... Cloning is going to be more prominent in later seasons and downright fucking essential to season 10. But the premise of all that starts right here with Accelerate. In fact, this cloning project is the reason that Lionel was refining the kryptonite which Eric Marsh stole and witnessed. So how's that for continuity, assholes? Speaking of continuity, Lionel manages to steal conservatorship of the Kawachi Caves from Lex after telling the governor about the accidents and deaths that have occurred in the cave since Lex took over. The episode Rush, I'm looking pretty much right at you. Speaking more of continuity, you might ask why Lionel might be so obsessed with cloning and genetic engineering and all that stuff. That's heavy-duty spoiler territory, but... Bear in mind, there's a reason for all this. Like so much else with this show, this little subplot doesn't get swept under the rug. Chekhov's gun. This is going somewhere, and it's going to be fucking huge. So yeah, anyway. Episode 22, Calling. 
The, uh, the teaser shows that Dr. Walden has come out of the coma he's been in since Rosetta, while Clark and Lana play tonsil hockey under a tree. Oddly enough, though, this episode doesn't bury the lead on either of those two developments. Those two things are pretty much what this episode's all about. In fact, this episode brings a certain revelation to light that, to this day, I'm really not very comfortable with. It's suggested that this may be the very first time that Clark's actually celebrated his birthday. It's very possible that he'd never even ha- that he'd never even so much as eaten a piece of birthday cake before. At least not in observance of his own birthday. All that changes of course when fucking Lana comes along. Now It'd be nice to be able to give credit where it's due for this next part, but unfortunately, I can't. There used to be a Smallville fan page out there called Existential Heroes. The writers analyzed certain episodes of Smallville from a very highly literary angle. The myth, morality, and philosophy of Smallville. I didn't love every single thing they posted up there, but a lot of it was pretty fucking rock solid. Now, Hope, one of the... uh, the site's staff writers in particular, Hope had a lot to say about this bit of business, about Clark never having a birthday party before. At least, I'm pretty sure it it, it was Hope. Anyway, I found her comments fascinating, and I'd love to be able to have reread her essay as a companion for this retrospective, but unfortunately, I can't because the site was nuked ages ago. As I recall, though, At least one of Hope's points made was that Lana being the first to celebrate Clark's birthday, yeah, it it elevates Lana, no question, but that comes at the detriment of Martha and Jonathan as parents. This was one of her main examples, but she cited other instances in the show where Lana's elevation came at some other character's expense. And my point here in, in mentioning all of this is to say I agree with that. There are any number of ways you could have enhanced Lana's character or else written her to be more sympathetic and likable without making Martha Kent a terrible fucking mother. To this day, I wish Smallville had never gone down this road. It's incidental even to this episode, I admit, but... I mean, look, it's never even mentioned again after the first few minutes of this episode of Calling, but the stench of it lingers long after credits roll for this episode. So that's that stuff. But whatever. It's done. No sense dwelling on it now. So, Lana and Chloe run into each other at the Talon, and I gotta tell you, dude, you can cut the awkwardness with a knife. This bit doesn't really lend itself too well to audio, but I'll try my best to include the discomfort here. Were you burning the midnight oil last night, too? I was... Just working on a toast for Lex's dinner. Oh. Chloe, ready to go? Everybody okay? Yeah. Great. Perfect. Checking. Right. Well, we better get going. 
I have ashes to sweep and wicked stepsisters to undermine. As I said during the Accelerate analysis, even if Lana isn't the most likable character in all of fiction, and God knows she's not, everybody has an agenda here that lines up with who they are as people. So, on that basis, it works for me. That doesn't stop Lana from putting the brakes on a relationship with Clark, though, after their little tryst in the loft. Confused as hell, Clark turns to Lex for advice, and they have a really great exchange about women. We've seen Lex and Clark talk about women a hundred times. It's just a guy thing to do. We eat pizza, we drink beer, we like cars, we talk about women. It's in our DNA. So my point here is that this moment felt very real to me. The other thing, though, is Clark's tone of voice when he tells Lex he went for it with Lana in the barn. And you can tell that they've talked about this before. Maybe off-camera, but Lex has encouraged Clark to make a move on Lana. And I don't mean that like in a predatory, you know, womanizing kind of way. Lex wants Clark to love Lana and for Lana to love him back. He's giving Clark the best advice he can to make that happen. And think about this for a minute. Lex has a job to do, a company to run, and a wedding to plan. I mean, he has his own crap to deal with his own little dramas going on but here here we see lex multitasking and making time to help clark as best he can i mean it's just it's really fucking cool of lex to do all this that's what i'm saying anyway for his own part clark's kind of put his heart on the line here it's one thing for him to hang around the barn and pine for lana it's another thing for him to finally make his move and risk everything one way or another his relationship with Lana is never going to be the same. Change of that magnitude just wasn't in the cards back in Season 1. Between mastering X-ray vision and fighting supervillains, Clark had just about all he could say grace over. The last thing he needed to do was risk the stability his friendship with Lana offered him. A year later, though, that's not enough anymore. Clark's grown as a person. He's a nice guy, but he's still a guy. And sooner or later, he's going to want something more than just a friendship with Lana, shall we say. It's a big deal to him that he took this kind of risk. I can only imagine how pissed off Clark must have been when he hears a voice saying, This is an important moment. Clark finally meets Jarrell. Quote unquote meets Jarrell. Now, of all the characters on the show, Clark's relationship with Jarrell is arguably the most consistently tense, and at times even openly antagonistic. Again, this isn't small stuff. Clark's relationship with Jarrell will change everything, it will affect everything. So anyway, remember that vial of blood that Helen drew from Clark back in episode number 16, Fever? It comes back in this episode. In the sense that it gets stolen in this episode, I mean. Stolen by Lex, 
Helen suspects Lex did it because she's not an idiot, but I gotta say, Lex's case isn't really helped much by admitting that he bribed him that he bribed himself a copy of Martha Kent's medical report from Fever. Helen's not the only one who suspects Lex's involvement, though. Jonathan's completely pissed off that Helen ever kept Clark's blood sample handy. Considering who she's about to marry, and that Jonathan knows, for a fact, that Lex has had the Kent family investigated, Jonathan immediately questions and suspects Lex's guilt. Deeper themes and implications. Lex asked Jonathan and Martha to stand in for his parents at the rehearsal dinner. Now, Clark's thrilled that Lex would ask, and Jonathan's honored to accept. Jonathan is honored to accept. Keep in mind, Lex asked this of the Kents in the same season when Jonathan treated him like shit and then threatened his life. And that was just insurgents. Forget about all the other drama that's gone on since then. Shit, forget about the drama that's gone on in this episode. Other stuff. Clark fights Dr. Walden in this episode. Walden now has superpowers thanks to the cave wall. And it's interesting to study Clark's uh, tactics in this battle. Clark mostly tries to reason with Dr. Walden, and he only uses his more defensive powers during the fight. In fact, it's actually to the degree that I don't know how accurate it even is to call this a fight. Clark isn't necessarily out to take Walden down. He just wants to put a stop to all this before somebody gets seriously fucking hurt. Of course, somebody gets seriously fucking hurt because Dr. Walden accidentally ignites a gas tank and not only gets seriously fucking hurt, but also dies in the battle. Now, Dr. Walden having superpowers isn't incidental. It may sound weird, but hear me out. I'll get more into this in Season 7, but I've got a theory that Dr. Walden having powers ties in directly with a subplot that we haven't seen too much of just yet. It'll get expanded upon a little bit in episodes to come, but I need you to remember that I said this. Chekhov's gun. It relates directly to two major characters in this series. This is an important development for other reasons, though. Less obvious reasons. You see, prior to calling, Lex had probably never really seen anybody use superpowers before. Now, he's probably heard the same rumors as everybody else. You know, stories about people with strange abilities and all of that stuff. Hearing that and seeing it are two very different things. When I started doing these retrospectives, I resolved not to spoil ahead in most cases. I want the listener to go on the same journey as the characters. If I'm constantly jumping back and forth between seasons and episodes and subplots and all this other bullshit, you, you listeners who are watching the show in tandem with me, might lose out on the significance of things. And it honestly, it could get a little confusing. And I'm abiding by that policy here. What I'll say, though, is that this is massive. This is incredibly important. I can't overemphasize how important this is to Smallville in general, and Lex in particular. Lex has finally seen proof with his own eyes 
that regular humans can, at least under certain circumstances, be possessed of extraordinary superhuman abilities. When Dr. Walden used his power in front of Lex, he didn't just shatter the, the glass wall separating him from Lex. He shattered Lex's illusions about what is and isn't humanly possible in this world. Now, Lex plays it pretty cool in Calling, but in short order, we're going to find out just how much the discovery that superhumans truly do exist, how much that discovery means to him. Speaking of Lex, Walden outright tells them that he can read what's uh, written on the Kawachi cave walls, and they say that Clark Kent will destroy everybody. Lex expresses open skepticism about this. Now, you remember how I've said all along, but especially this season, that Lex is slightly more empirical than Lionel? It's still true. Lex has a slightly higher uh, burden of proof, a need for scientific evidence and expert opinions and corroborating testimony and all those other things. Don't get me wrong. Lex is perfectly willing to consider alternative explanations to things, but he needs a certain amount of authority behind it. The ravings of some lunatic are rarely enough to convince him, and that's the case here. Lionel, though, is just a little bit more credulous, provided that the end result supports the hypothesis. Lionel works backwards on it. Lex wants proof up front. Lionel will accept some, uh, some insane theory, by which I mean speculation, conjecture, as long as it's proven to be true. To put it another way, you can eventually wear out Lionel's patience. After a while, you're gonna, he's going to get fed up with you and your bullshit. By contrast, you have to earn Lex's patience in the first place, but, or because he has a lot more skepticism to overcome. These traits are illustrated in throwaway, throwaway lines when Walden catches up with Lex at Luther Mansion, but it's true of both Lex and Lionel in other parts of the series. I think this whole scene was very well done for what it says about Lex, Lionel, and Dr. Walden. Some good fucking writing. Apart from that, Chloe and Clark make amends in this episode. Or try to, anyway. They agree to not keep things from each other, but Clark can't tell her that he's been trying to play hide the weenie with Lana, and later, Chloe can't tell him that Lionel Luther wants her to do an expose about him. Or at least, she chooses not to after she secretly spies Clark and Lana playing some more tonsil hockey with each other, which, honestly, same difference, really. Clark and Chloe's friendship has become strained, and it's not going to get better anytime soon. Calling ends in episode 23, Exodus begins with Clark, in a certain kind of sense, a meeting Jarrell. Fear not, Carmel. Who are you? I am Jarrell, your father. I, I thought you died! I am his memory, his will. I am to fulfill his promise and guide you all the days of your life. You are the last son of Krypton. When you traveled through the cosmos, you carried the hopes and dreams of your people. They now live through you, Kalel. It is time. Time for what? Time to accept your destiny. I don't know what 
you have in mind for me? By the setting of the sun's soul, you will return to me. Your destiny will be fulfilled. The dialogue may seem like throwaway stuff, but there's some incredibly important shit buried here. Your thoughts are not a mystery to me, Kalel. But these people have served their purpose. It is time to leave them. Let go of your past. I will guide you to your future. No, I don't want your guidance! I want to create my own future! You have no choice, Carlyle. This is the perfect summary of Clark and Jarrell's relationship both now and throughout the rest of the series. Still, the one question nobody's ever bothered to ask is why Jarrell wants Clark to take over the world. Nobody, least of all Jarrell, does something for no reason. If Jarrell wants Clark to rule the world, there's a purpose behind it. Why? What does Jarrell gain from Clark conquering the world? What does the world gain? Big questions, all of them. And they're going to be addressed to varying degrees later in the show. But for right now, Clark can't get past that whole take-over-the-world angle to ask these questions. His inability to do so is what causes a lot of trouble later on. Now, without spoiling anything, though, what I'm driving at here is that if Clark had just shut the fuck up and done what he was told, a lot of misery later on could have been avoided. True, this wouldn't have led to him becoming Superman. But for the sake of analyzing Jarrell's character, that's not the point. The point is that Jarrell gave Clark a job to do. Had Clark done it, had he conquered the world, things later on would have gone a lot fucking smoother. What I'll say, though, is this. In Superman the movie, Clark's called by the Green Crystal ultimately to go to the Arctic. The Crystal builds the Fortress of Solitude, and Clark's subjected to 12 years of Kryptonian brainwashing, after which Superman emerges. A road kind of like that is what Jarrell in Smallville, the TV show Smallville, has. that's what Jarrell in Smallville has in mind for this version of Clark. Unlike Superman the movie, though, Clark in Smallville rejects Jarrell and his guidance. He's going to reach the same destination as his movie and comic book counterparts. He's simply going to follow his own path to get there. To me, that's the crucial difference between the Christopher Reeve Superman and the Superman Tom Welling is going to grow up to be. Smallville Superman will be the end product of his own struggles, his own victories and triumphs and defeats and setbacks and life choices. The film Superman, the Christopher Reeve Superman, is the end product of brainwashing and social engineering. One of those is very sympathetic to me, and also very heroic. The other seems contrived and artificial. But enough of that. Apart from that stuff, Lex confesses to Helen that he stole Clark's blood from her office. Helen, well, who can blame her? Helen is understandably pissed off about all of that, and so she dumps him. As with other things, though, that doesn't stop Lex from multitasking. 
Clark swings by the mansion to meet with Lex's tailor, and Lex brings Clark up to speed about goings-on with the Kawachi Caves and Lionel taking over conservatorship and all that stuff. There's really no great significance to this. I just happen to think it's interesting that Lex can juggle so much without breaking a sweat. (sighs) Other stuff. The short version here is that Clark destroys his ship in the hopes of ridding himself of Jarrell, but the resulting carnage causes mayhem and devastation, which uh, results in Martha Kent miscarrying her baby. And it's all Clark's fault. So, in a fit of guilt, he, pit, uh, he puts on a red kryptonite ring from the episode Red, hops on a motorcycle, and leaves Smallville to move to Metropolis. Meanwhile, Lex wakes up all alone aboard the Luthercorp jet just in time for it to crash into the ocean. That's the end of season two, people. But it's not the end of this retrospective, though. To take a look back at season two in general... Honestly, I stand by my remarks from the Rosetta episode. The pacing of this season's big story arc is ten different kinds of wonky. Nothing in this season truly gets underway, at least on a plot level, until episode 17, Rosetta. Before then, there's a shitload of character building, but really not much direct movement towards this season's major struggles and conflicts. Also, as I said, in the, uh, in the uh, uh, Rosetta retrospective episode, that may well have been completely unavoidable. Maybe there was just no way to avoid it, but I should mention that Goff and Miller were still pretty new to television. It was only this year that they had a dedicated writing staff. Managing the staff was clearly a new thing for them. Now, they'd pace future seasons better, it's true, but this season started off very much as a continuation of the season one approach of telling somewhat self-contained stories, at least before Rosetta, at which time a larger narrative began taking shape there's just not a whole lot of unity to the whole thing. That's what I'm saying. Another way of looking at it, as I've said before, I guess, basically, you could, if you wanted to, there is an argument to classifying everything, starting with Rosetta through to Exodus, as part of Season 3. Those episodes raise issues and and themes and conflicts that Season 3 is going to expand upon and eventually pay off. I say this because there's a sense in which Season 3 has so many big ideas and concepts and developments that they can't all be contained within the 22-episode structure of the official Season 3 So, Goff and Miller had to start Season 3 several episodes early, in other words, during Season 2, in order to fit everything in there. Now, obviously, that's not how the series is officially organized. The end of Season 2 is the end of Season 2. The beginning of Season 3 is the beginning of Season (laughs) 3. But I've seen a lot of people make this argument. And I'm not saying I buy into it myself, 
I'm just sharing it just to kind of get the ideas out there. None of this is to, is to say, though, that season two isn't awesome, because it absolutely is. I just think that certain aspects of it, as far as pacing, could have been handled better. It could have been... I guess it, I, I guess it could have been smoother, based on, based on what I think. But again, there could be a reason for Goff and Miller structuring things the way that they did. And in a lot of ways... It's kind of tough to argue with the final result. Clark and Lex have been on parallel journeys ever since this series started, but Season 2 brings that concept up to the next level. Throughout Season 2, Clark and Lex face very similar trials and temptations and defeats and victories. Season 1 dealt with Lex and Clark adjusting to their new lives and circumstances in the context of this really just fucking strange town that they live in. Season 2 revolved around Lex and Clark coming face-to-face with what they believe is their destiny. They both make choices to fight and actively resist their perceived destinies. But by the end of Season 2, they're both losing their battles. Jarrell and Lionel have left heavy legacies for both of them. Winning isn't going to come without a hell of a struggle. And that's if it comes at all. Still, for whatever reason, at some point in season two, both Lex and Clark had, to, had come to see love as a means of conquering futures they don't want for themselves. But the season ends with both of them having lost their love. Clark puts on the red kryptonite ring and leaves Smallville. Specifically Lana. When Lex comes to on the plane, he finds he's been abandoned by Helen. In the crucial moment, romantic love fails both Clark and Lex, and so they have no choice but to avoid their their destinies on their own terms. Season 3 is going to show us whether either of them is successful with their efforts. Without spoiling anything, what Lex and Clark have got to learn and understand is that ultimately they have to shape their own futures, expecting or for that matter, fearing that other people are going to do it for them isn't going to work. Same thing applies for expecting someone else to save them from themselves. Both of them need to make peace with themselves if they want to seize control of their own futures. But they're both a long way from that realization. By the time credits roll for Exodus, it's up for grabs if either of them will ever come to that realization. Another thing is that Goff and Miller had largely settled upon a visual identity for Smallville starting with season two. Color design, cinematography, effects techniques, and other tools of the trade were working to give Superman in general, and Smallville in particular, a more modern visual language. It'd be tweaked in ensuing seasons, but it first started getting established and locked down right here during season two. And from this point on, the visuals would mostly stay the same. Although, to be fair, I'm going to have a lot more to say about this much later on. And that's that. The end of the episode, the end of season two, the end of this retrospective. 
be right back after these messages. Arrows. Moria Clawhammer here. Thanks to a tax loophole and a life insurance policy, I have an authentic Mexican taco stand. The explosive taqueria. Well, if you want a pound of burrito, or just get your tongue on a taco, well, get off your ass, take a waco. Come throw some meat down your throat. If you want some food, here's a thingo. You don't want to eat like a gringo. Have some Mexican grub with some zingo. Taco sauce that explodes in your mouth. At the Explosive Taqueria in South DeManzaville, we have every kind of goddamn Mexican food you crave. We got chimichangas, ensalada, churros, chupacarnes, deep-fried jalapeno pooper, churritos, the famous taco shake. Taco shake discontinued. Triple refried baked beans, choritos, chimichibas, chimichochas, the Commodore's nachos, and the ever-popular endless burrito bowl. All prepared by our authentic Mexican cook, Manuel. My name is David. I'm from Bolivia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For the ladies, we have the Tila Tequila, a tiny taco, but you'll be amazed how much beef and cheese we can stuff in there. For the daredevil, we have the El Pollo Croco, a full chicken stuffed with four soft-shell tacos, two beef burritos, and two sides of your choice, deep-fried and slathered in taco sass. The taco sauce with sass. So lock down your sphincter and come on down. The Explosive Taqueria, 312 Elm Street, South de Monzaville. Tell them where Clawhammer sent you. Arriva Dirty. Okay, I'm going to do the promo now. Really? Finally. Okay, let's do the promo. What do you mean, let's do the promo? I'm the one who has to do it. Well, get on with it then. Okay, okay, here we go. Iron Man. The Incredible Hulk. The Mighty Thor. The Captain America. Wow. Being dramatic there, aren't we? Do do you think it's too much? Should I back off? No, 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 you're fine. You're good. Okay. You've seen the Earth's mightiest heroes in the Avengers franchise of films. Now you can enjoy the stories that have inspired those films through the magic of comic podcasting. Magic of podcasting? You sure about that one? Well, yeah, because, you know, we're awesome. Like, magic. Only without actually seeing any magical things. Just go with it, go with it, go with it. Okay. Don't forget to tell them what we're actually doing on the show. Oh, oh yeah, okay. So join Lily Wilson, the awesomest teenage comics fan in the world, Mm -hmm. as her father takes her through all the early comics that feature characters from the Avengers franchise of films. And some that aren't in those films yet, but will be. Because we started with the Ant-Man before we had a full film. Oh, well, yeah. And don't forget Spider-Man. He's not looking at Avenger, but he's there. Oh, okay. So um, maybe it should be that feature characters that have been, are currently, or will one day be in the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. Better. And where should they go not see this magical podcasty goodness? New episodes can be found... Fa- <coughs> do I have to do the voice? Yes, you do. Okay, okay. New episodes can be found at the Complete Marvel Reading Order website. 
cmro.travis-starns.com and clicking under the Podcasts tab. Or on iTunes by searching Complete Marvel Reading Order or just search for the name of the show itself. Um, Dad, don't you think we should actually say the name of our show? Oh, yeah, Avengers Inspirations Podcast. Listen and stuff. Yeah, good job, Dad. Thank you. Hello, my name is Robert Willing, and I love comics. But my all-time favorite comics are the alternate universe comics. Now, that's not an obscure comic company that's known only to local comic stores. What I'm talking about are comics that gives us a different spin on characters we know and love. From your Elseworlds at DC to your what-ifs at Marvel. Why am I doing it? Well, there are two reasons. First of all, I love the unlimited possibilities that the multiverse has brought us, and I wanted to share that love with everyone. I will be talking about all sorts of alternate continuities. If it wasn't canon, I'll talk about it. Elseworlds, what if? Intercompany continuity is because, let's face it, very few of those count. I'll also be talking about non-canon minis like Superman Birthright, Shazam A New Beginning, Bob Layton's Hercules, and even Heroes Reborn because, let's face it, we're all glad that never stuck. And on a few occasions, I'll even be discussing the Doctor Who Unbound audios. I'll also try and get interviews and Q&As with as many comic creators as I possibly can. Now keep in mind, this does not count full running company lines or eras, so no children comics or the ultimate comics. The All-Stars, maybe. Oh, and the second reason, well... Hey, how's it going? Hey, what are you doing in my room? My room? This is mine at... Wait, Sean Ingle? What are you doing here? Sean, I'm... I'm Robert Willing, and... Wait, you look like Sean Ingle. Ugh, okay, I get it. You're from a world where I'm Sean Ingle, and you're me. Man, you... you get visits, too? Yeah. You see, folks, my house is set in a unique location of the multiverse, where every world intersects, and I get occasional and very random visits from other me's. Tell me about it. Once I met a version of me where I was Guy Gardner. Pre or New 52? Neither. It was the collateral damage one. Yeah, I met him. What an absolute jerk. Oh, holy cow. That, uh, that Guy Gardner was such an ass. So join me this summer as I transverse the multiverse and share different iterations of churches you love, as well as deal with other me. And then, you know, Jacob decided to take away the whole Boldarian thing and make a Boldarian storyline. It was just awful. What the hell was he thinking? I'm kidding. See you soon, everyone. Elsewhere in the multiverse, look at all your favorite alternate iterations coming soon to a podcast near you. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches reality. 
There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2 True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsecor of Milan, Italy.